ga 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 I forgot. Ooh, come on, musical accompaniment. <laughs> Bet the folks at home didn't know that <laughs> this podcast was accompanied. <laughs> I thought By I was going to do something. A honky tonk. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should do that one day. We should do like, a, do like a musical, like it just all sung through episode. Ooh. Well, I was thinking earlier when our my audio wasn't on that we should do a silent film podcast. <laughs> mm, mm. A sort of guided yet still unguided mm-hmm. meditation, really. Mm. <laughs> In a silent, mm-hmm. sort of protracted kind of mm-hmm. audio, but not really a sort of way. Mm-hmm. Hello, hello. Welcome back to We Love That. I'm Kenyon. And I'm Jerome. Uh, and this week, Let's have a conversation about systemic oppression. Let's have a conversation about white supremacy. Hey, you. I guess I do say that a lot now. We're to, to try it again. See see what else comes off at the top. Uh, hey, queen. <laughs> hey, clown. <laughs> Jester, you have done it again. Um, Kenyon, I have a surprise for you. Yeah. <laughs> Not me. I'm always getting you with something. Yeah. Um, do I guess what it is or do you just tell me? I'm just going to, I'm going to show you, oh, which is really exciting no. for you. It's less exciting for the people at home. Okay. But... Oh my gosh. I'm showing Kenyon my little band-aid <laughs> that is showing off, that is covering up, in fact, not showing off, but covering up ooh, ooh. where uh, Miss Pfizer is wow. inoculating. Wow. She's a Pfizer girl. How is She's it? How Pfizer was it? Girl. Um, it was easy. It was the easiest thing in the world. Um, and now it's in my body. I will say that my arm doesn't really hurt, but it does a little, like a tiny bit at the point of injection. Um, but I'm here for it. I live for it. I love for it. I'll be a Pfizer girl for the rest of my life. (laughs) Brand loyalty. (laughs) (laughs) Don't go switching right now. (laughs) When they... When they make the new uh, racial groups based on which uh, vaccine you got, Please. I will be in Pfizer. Please. Which don't. I think is probably going to be the dominant. <laughs> that sentence was just, it was too close to our actual present reality wow. for, for me to be there with you. Wow. Well, I certainly agree with that. But like the bio, the biopower. The biological, literally biopower, state sponsored superiorities. It's scary. Um, did you ever read A Brave New World? 
I read about it. I think I was supposed <laughs> to read it at some point. Right, um, right. And so I read parts of it. But I was in the seventh grade, and it was over the summer, and I was like, Mama, this is boring. Um, but there's something about, like, alphas and betas. <laughs> so instead of that, it'll be, like, Pfizer's and Moderna's. And then, what, the poor Johnson & Johnson folk are just... Yeah, Johnson & Johnson is like a gamma. And then, like, ooh, if you're AstraZeneca, <laughs> you just jumped on the scene. Ooh. <laughs> wow, wow. Well, congratulations. Very Thank happy for you. you. Thank you. I'm very glad that our governor finally decided that teachers are important. He was unconvinced for a long time. <laughs> wow, what kind of... What pushed him over the edge, I wonder? I don't know. <laughs> Shame. <laughs> <laughs> you know, this is maybe controversial, but maybe not. There are, like, appropriate uses for shame, and that would be one we of them. We were talking about this on the podcast at some point. Like, is there a good use for shame? And I think sometimes, yes. Like, I I think so, but when it gets trapped and when it gets bottled and repressed and when it yeah. lingers and it's when, you know. Anyway. I mean, it's not my favorite. It's not my go-to. Right, right. But, but sometimes, like similar to fear, you know, I'm not trying to live my life yeah. afraid, but fear also does have its, you know, uses. Like, don't touch that hot yeah. pan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm afeard. Don't touch that hot pan. <laughs> it's so, hot. What did you learn today at school? I learned not to touch the hot pan. Thanks. Don't touch the hot pan. Wow. Well, I have no surprises for you. Um, really. So. The pr- you never are trying to deliver some sort of surprise for our programming. I just show up as I am, Jerome, and if you could just kind of accept me. <laughs> no, I actually want you to feel shame about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Well, see, I was afraid you'd say that. Uh, oh, my. <laughs> really coming, really coming full circle. <laughs> Goodness. This has to end. It really does. Thank you, Tom. Tommy's giving us a sign that we have to move on to the next section. So <laughs> okay, thank you thank for you keeping and us to- on. Now? Uh, okay. Okay. Great. And what? He's, uh-huh. Okay. Um, Kenyon, a bit of a, a solemn, somber week. It really in is. In which we meet one another. Yeah. Um, I've been really... I mean, not happy is just not strongest language <laughs> yeah. to, to describe. Um, yeah. But for for anyone who hasn't heard out there, um, and I guess to, to kick things off, I, this week we're talking about the shootings that happened in Atlanta. Um, mm-hmm. Eight people As well as the, uh, the, the rise over the past year of uh, violence and hate crimes and fear and fear mongering mm. um, around Asian Americans, Asian American Pacific Islanders. Uh, yeah, it is. What I remember from last week was that it felt like, or at least a, over the past couple of weeks that this was a conversation in the feeds that I was participating in uh, on the internet um, and around campus Um that, that the students have been really engaging around. Mm. That people were bringing a, calling attention to this rise in 
violence that the AAPI community has been dealing with and facing over the last year. Um, and it was like, as that seemed to, again, in the, you know, in the circles that I am a part of on social media and on campus here, uh, that it was right when it seemed most people were really paying attention to it or beginning to really turn their attention to it, that this horrible thing happens. Um, almost as if to say, you know, if you're not paying attention. Right. Well, here, here is good reason to. Here it is. Uh, but, you know, there have been, I see something new every day about someone, a, a specifically Asian American who has been harassed or hurt or brutalized or attacked or yelled at or harangued simply on the street, on the train, you know. Um, it's something that I think is happening, is happening a lot and that there is not a lot of attention toward. I mean, you know, this renewed or, or this, uh, there's been a lot of attention in the last month, but it is reacting to a spike over the last year. Right, right. And I mean, I think that it's easy for, I found it easy for myself to not, um, if I'm not giving, you know, my my real attention to that, that's not something that I'm experiencing, you know, I'm not experiencing that particular kind of violence um, yeah. in, in my communities and communities that I'm a part of. And so it's easy to, to miss it um, if you're not looking and if you're not staying engaged. Um, I... I feel like I'm coming out of a kind of like a news media um, black hole as I've been like, oh, wait, now that Trump's no longer president, maybe I'll like look at the news some more. And like, maybe I'll like, maybe this won't be, you know, too upsetting for me to not be able to function. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And the news of the shootings really, um, like, (laughs) it just... There's never a... These things happen all the time. These things happen all the time in this country. And I'm, I'm trying to pay more attention to them um, because we've got to do something. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's something in particular about... Um, that these are... It, it has me thinking a lot about like how to be a bystander. Mm. Um, what to do when you witness something that's happening, um, how to engage or try to stop or, you know, uh, and that that's something that I feel like over the past year have, has, I've gotten really far away from just because, you know, when am I out and about and witnessing something that's happening in person? Right. Right. (laughs) Um, and so that's something in particular that I've been thinking about. I have been, so, you know, the the fact of it's being, it's happening in this quarantine time, uh, I think contributes to like, you know, it, it happens on the train, it happens out in public, and there are fewer people around to witness it, to see that it's happening. Um, I, tonight we had a, there was a vigil um, to honor the memory of the eight people who were killed. Uh, and I think that it actually is, we, it was outside and it was distanced and everyone was wearing masks, et cetera. Um, 
but I think that it was the largest like crowd that I had been a part of since, mm. you know, last June or uh, probably since uh, Trump lost the election was the last time I was around people in this way. Um, and the thing that I was most struck by, we did it on this big lawn and there's a, a road that cuts straight through the campus um, and there were cars driving by on the road and it felt unsafe. Like it, 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 I felt like, oh my God, we're all here standing, <laughs> you know, mm. I, I felt like we were sitting ducks, which is a ridiculous thing to think and to feel, but is, you know, I, there's been a lot of talk in, in the last week since the shootings about how, um, this also has been a year in America without mass shootings, but mm. that that seems to also be coming to a close. Um, and so I was really struck by the, um, by the bravery of our students to be speaking on these microphones. There was a student who played the Gujang and it was, that was really beautiful. And um, it felt like a beautiful way to honor the lives of the folks who were lost. But it, I was really taken aback by how unsafe I felt. Right. Um, being a part of that. That's, I mean, you said it, you, you called it ridiculous, but I want to validate that feeling. Like, that's a real feeling people, especially who work in schools and who go to school, like, that, that safe space is not feeling that safe for a lot of people. Um, yeah. And that's a really real thing. Um, and, like, a very valid response to, you know, th this, is, this is the culture that we live in, and these things happen you know, not infrequently. This is, this is the norm. Um, I'm curious what, you know, having not been able to go to, to a gathering like that, like what, what was said there? Um, or what did it feel like to come together for, to remember this, uh, this group of people? Yeah, I, I am reflecting on my own experience. So a lot of what's been said has been I, I don't know that I have been to a vigil or or to a demonstration that was specifically in solidarity with uh, with AAPI folks, um, and so I I was reflecting on that as I was there um, that there are a lot of ways that like you know it's complicated that the the whole model minority of it all gets really complicated yeah. that there are ways in which you know. Obviously, the myth of the model minority is a myth, and that does not, it does not benefit anyone. Um, but it does, it has meant that, uh, particularly in, in issues that seem to get a lot of attention in activism over the last, I don't know, as long as I have been kind of aware of like activism that I can be a part of, um, primarily in over policing in mm -hmm. uh, the prison industrial complex um, have been targeted toward black and Latinx folks. Um, and I don't know that I have spent a lot of time thinking about, okay, what are the ways in which Asian folks, Asian Americans, Asian American Pacific Islanders have, uh, that, that I just feel like I, it is an area that I need to 
continue to do more research and awareness and checking myself in terms of, you know, how am I standing up for this community, standing up with this community. Um, there was a lot of discussion of, which I really commend the students on, of uh, that it is not just a story of, or that the specific shooting is uh, clearly a, a, an act of violence that was perpetrated specifically against the AAPI community, um, against AAPI folks, uh, but also that it is a another, you know, we were just talking about this. It is another white man uh, who has some sort of, you know, he, this guy didn't have exactly a manifesto, but mm-hmm. then whose motives we understand and who, you know, famously the, that police department said that he was having a bad day. There was so much about, there was so much they said about how much we immediately knew about the person who committed this crime, um, who committed these crimes against these victims, but how little we knew about the victims Mm. and how little we continue to know, even something as simple as seemingly simple as, you know, what are their names? How do you pronounce their names? How do you correctly write their names? Um, and that really stuck with me, that it's like we spend so much time... That this ultimately is a story about white supremacy. Right. Um, and that even in our response to it, um, I mean, we are, you know, as a society, as a country, the thing that feels most salient coming out of it is is things about the shooter, is, is things about, like... Because that is what is familiar. The thing that's familiar is that this is a thing that happens a lot, um, and it does not take a lot to tap into, okay, well, what was he thinking? And, you know, I didn't need to read an article. (laughs) I didn't need to hear from the police department, from the sheriff's office in Atlanta, that he, like, had some weird sexual fetishization of these women. Like, that is something that is a part of, like, that's why this happens. Right. Like, that it is that type of dehumanization that leads people to believe that they can go out and kill people. Um, and I was really struck by that. That, like, why is the narrative that we have built up so much the one of the perpetrator? Mm. And, and, I, you know, I think that it's important to to notice the patterns and to notice the connections, but, like, you know, we haven't really done anything about it, so, like... You know, <laughs> that... Right, right, I see you. The one good end of, oh, well, what is connecting all of these these people who do these horrific things? We haven't even done anything good with it. It just still continues to feel like, oh, well, who's the person here that we should pay attention to? The white guy. Right, and pay attention to to him so as to humanize him. Yeah. You know? Yeah. It is disappointing to see that continue to happen. Because it's like, well, I'm not trying to say that, you know, we should just be out here dehumanizing people, but that is what's going on. And it's <laughs> it's not happening to the people who are perpetrating crimes like these. Yeah. These crimes are are rooted in and are expressions of the dehumanization that AAPI people are are experiencing all, all over this culture, all throughout this country. Um, and to to even in the aftermath, like you were saying, of of this horrific, horrific act to have have the narrative so skewed. Yeah. Ugh, it's hard to look at. Yeah. It is 
a a strange echo of what we were talking about last week with Meghan Markle, mm. only because it's like, how many times do we have to see the same thing over and over again and not altogether understand, like, what the story is, you know? Like, how many times do we have to see this same sort of narrative occur before we can be like, oh, right. <laughs> like, I mean, not to overly simplify it, not to, to dehumanize anybody, but like, here's the problem, here's the villain, here's the evil, mm. and we have to do something about it. it like, the, the idea of, oh, well, we don't know if it's a hate crime, so let's not say it is. It's like, come on, whether or not, <laughs> first of all, why are we trusting this man to know whether he, <laughs> you know, he is not the friggin' professor of critical race theory. Right. I don't think he knows. What, what constitutes. <laughs> I don't think he's fully en- engaged with his own racial motivations. Um, but also that there is nothing, like, nothing happens in a vacuum. <laughs> right. And so in a world in which uh, hate crimes against API people have gone through the roof in the last year, in a world in which you have a president and a party that is so eager to scapegoat anyone but themselves, Mm. to scapegoat anyone but people who look like themselves, uh, and to blame, uh, in in their obsession with blaming China, (laughs) that... Which, let just must be said, is irrational. Like, like, I don't, that... That gets pointed out so much in the media, in, you know, like, oh, wow, I can't believe he's doing this again. Like, but I I feel like it's never said enough that, like, that makes, that there is no basis for that. Not in in fact, but not even in, like, logic reason. Like, that is emotional hatred just spilling out of someone's mouth and passing for... Policy question mark? Yeah, the the degree to which I am so sick of the freaking Republican Party. The degree to which all these people are now trying to walk back and and say, oh, well, those are just words. And it's no different from saying the UK variant and, you know, blah, blah, blah. Again, it's like, how many times do we have to run the same play before we start to see how it works? (laughs) Well, I mean, but I, you know, who is we? Who uh, right. you know? That's the point. The point is that it works every time. <laughs> is that the the narr- the white supremacist narrative is what people are used to, and what we as a society, as a country, will accept. And there are instructions in place to make sure that we do, and to make it hard yeah. for us to to question that and to do the work of disentangling our own selves from that. Um, which is really where what I heard and what you were saying and also where my mind went. I mean, I think in the last year especially, but in the last many years of violence against queer people, violence against black people, lots of my initial response is is to take care of myself because that mm-hmm. feels like the work to be done in that moment um, and is to, you know, figure out a way to 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 hold myself and hold the people, the other black people, the other queer people in my life you know, hold each other up and keep moving. Um, here is it. It feels like it's a different. It's a different kind of self work moment yeah. for me. And it, this is 
prompting me to go back through my own experiences starting very young in, in school and just like notice that right alongside anti-Black rhetoric and jokes and anti-queer, um, you know, stuff that people say is like a, t- a ton of anti-Asian sentiment. And it yeah. was baked into the world that I grew up in. And that's part of the self-work that I'm trying to at least start doing and do more of. Because um, like, like you said, if we don't, if people don't start doing the work, we just replay and we replay. Yeah. Um, I mean, we were just talking about Dr. Seuss. We were just talking about Dr. Seuss. Oof. And it's like, that is the type of thing that's like, you know, I can think of ways that I think part two, again, I, and this echoes some of the things that I was saying before about like so much attention being on policing and prisons and that that's something that is deserving of a lot of attention. But I think that in my experience in black communities, um, that there is kind of a, there is an acceptance of that model minority myth. Absolutely. Which is, again, the work of white supremacy to say, hey, all of you people who aren't white, you should hate each other too in order to keep white supreme. Um, But I think that there's been a lot of like, you know, well, it's okay to make fun of them because it's okay to, you know, those those jokes are okay because they have it so good. They have it so much better than us. Mm. They, you know, their problems are so different from our problems. And that that is, again, all part of the myth. That that is not, you know, that is not something to hang a hat on. Um, and it's the same. Oh, go for it. Well, I was just, I was only going to say that it only gets more complicated because it gets stoked by. Uh, I'm thinking about the uh in the LA riots in 1992 mm. um and in in much of the 90s that there's this narrative of like asian people are coming in and taking buying all these businesses in black communities and that at the time that that was a large uh that was a a big divide um yeah. and there was a lot of animosity between asian communities um, and and black communities that, of course, were not helped when in, I believe, 1992 or shortly before that a young black girl gets shot and killed in L.A. by a an Asian store owner. Um, and, uh, you know, all of this is to say that <laughs> that everyone, it is all white supremacy, right? Like, it is all of the same. Um yeah. But I, I, I really am seeing a ton of what you're talking about online right now. You know, black people coming out of the woodwork saying, you know, yeah, 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 but. Right. Or I made a joke and yeah, I did make a joke because I'm black and somehow that. Right. Means, what does that exactly mean? I don't, I don't. The, the question that I feel like has to be asked in those situations is who benefits from my hatred exactly. or from me spending my energy in this way? And the question or the answer in all of these situations, like you just said, it's the white establishment. 
It's the police state. Right. right. But it, it, I think like it takes that real thought to, to figure out like, oh, you're being played right now. Yeah. You are being played. Yeah. I always, the thing that I always <laughs> think about is like, if the joke that I'm making is something that, or the, you know, the statement that I'm making or the political whatever, if the thing that I'm saying sounds a lot like something that a white supremacist might say, okay, then why am I saying it? <laughs> you know, it's like, let me, mm, let me be real critical <laughs> when I start to sound like these people whom I do not want to sound like. Right. And, and I think that that's sort of like, oh, well, we can make those jokes because it's us making the joke. It's like, uh, no, does that really hold up? <laughs> like, whose side are you on? <laughs> right. And like that language is learned. Like that yeah. is, yeah, <laughs> it's not just like 100%, oh, I feel this way, so I'm just going to make a joke at someone's expense. Like, no, we live in a culture that promotes and upholds those things. And so when we're feeling somehow made to feel, you know, less than or scared or whatever, shamed, um, we reach for those things that are out in the culture that, you know, white people are using to, to to make themselves feel better. And it's like, don't, yeah. don't take that language. Like that yeah. is still doing, that's doing the work on not your behalf. Master's tools. Master's tools, master's house. Um, yeah. I mean, if we, if we only, uh, if we only start to speak up when something affects us, isn't that what we get on white <laughs> people for doing? Like, isn't that the whole thing? It's like, you have to speak up when something bad is happening, even if the bad thing is not happening to you. If right. if someone is the if someone is the butt of a joke, or the you know is getting the short end of whatever situation, honestly, no matter how lighthearted and innocent or you know small potatoes it may feel. Or if it is something, you know, big and systemic and heavy, uh, to to stand by is to, I mean, we know all these things, right? right. Like, it, it feels kind of strange to be saying them <laughs> or to feel like, oh, yes, I'm stumbling back into all this language that we were saying about ourselves, like we were saying about, about the struggles that Black people face. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it, all those same things are true because Black people are not the only victims of white supremacy. And so if we're just going to, yeah, to see people online, to see tweets, to see whatever of people being like, well, you know, I don't feel any solidarity from an Asian community. So why should we as a black community stand up in solidarity for them? It's like, who does that serve? <laughs> like that does that, like, let's build a bigger team. Let's build a big, like, why are we now all of a sudden, like, why would we spend all last summer, why would we spend all of our time, all the time, saying, hey, everybody, can you please stand up for us? Right. But then when someone else needs the support, we're not going to stand up for them? That's crazy. Like, we as queer people say that all the time. Right. We as black people say that all the time. Why would that suddenly not be true? And I mean, in you're talking about solidarity. You're talking about real, sustained, community-based solidarity. Um and I feel like the, the, a road to that is like looking at the intersections that we all live at. Like this, yeah. this event 
this terrible shooting is absolutely anti-Asian. It is a hate crime. It's also classist. It's also sexist. It like, everything is right there for you to find a way, for you, whoever you are, to find a way in and and, (laughs) and empathize. (laughs) Really. (laughs) If you you need something. (laughs) If simply the fact of there being human is not enough. (laughs) If you need a little Uh, buy-in, if you need a little story. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we haven't quite talked about this too much and I'd love to dive into it. Um, The connection between, um, you know, the police have come out saying that this, the shooter had a a sex addiction. Um, Mm -hmm. And the connections between what specifically Asian American women face and the fetishization um, that this shooter is depicting, you know, I think is, there's, there's so much gender work to be done too, I look and like work. <laughs> yeah, like ooh, like masculinity. It's in trouble. Like if this is, like, <laughs> yes, wow, okay, is. and like, if, if that at all speaks to anyone out there who identifies in any sort of masculine way, then yes, there's work here for you to be doing. Yeah, there's work here for the two of us to be doing. There's work here for you to do for those playing along at home. Um, yeah, I, (laughs) the idea of, oh no, this wasn't a hate crime. He had a sex addiction. I'm like, (laughs) what? (laughs) And, and that negates this. Why? Right. I mean, you know, none of this is, I'm not breaking any new territory here, but it's like, must be said. It's like, okay, so what exactly is the connection between this man's sex addiction and him going out and and killing people, primarily Asian women. It's like, yeah, I think there's something racist there. <laughs> yeah, I think right. there's something about that. I, and it is, it is all wrapped up in it. And, I mean, it comes back to the dehumanization on so many levels um, and that it is never... <laughs> the idea of... <laughs> The idea of intersectionality as something that, like, invented as part of identity politics in response to, (laughs) like, as, you know, we're just trying to make up something. It's like, no, the intersectionality comes out of the oppression. Right. Like, it is appropriate because it is the specific way that (laughs) Asian women are the specific victim of a a crime like this, Mm. of a of an act of violence like this, like that is why we have to pay attention in all of these different dimensions. Because if, if this had nothing to do with them being Asian women, with the victims being Asian women, then it wouldn't have, it just wouldn't have happened. It would not have happened in this way. Right. I think there are still, there are still people out there who are like, you know, people call it a hate crime, but how is it related to the sex addiction? Like, need the the tracing of of the intersections to really see stuff and i ran across this video of ocean vong who was talking about the language that we use to <laughs> for for boys to talk about success mm. and pleasure mm-hmm. and he's like all the language we we use is is in violence you're killing it yeah 
I made a killing. Like, you're smashing yeah. it. Smashed it. Right. Like, all, all of this language is like, oh, if, if, and these are, I'm really just paraphrasing this video. Everyone should go watch it. Um, but like, if, if masculine identifying people are being taught that the only way to evaluate themselves in relationship to that masculinity is through the language of violence, like that, that is the link. There we are there. You get violent acts as an expression of success on all kinds of masculine, you know, what is termed masculine axes, um, power and dominance, sex, pleasure, like, yeah, there it is. Yeah. I mean, when, when are we going to, it's the bad day thing. Mm. (laughs) It's like the violence that is so baked in that someone would, and you know, I don't think that, it that is part of the the like if you're not paying attention you will, you'll miss it right mm-hmm. that's that's that part it's like that's the baked in racism of it all right that you know I don't think that that a police officer harbors any active disdain for AAPI folks that he's aware of. I don't think that, you know, I don't think that he's like, you know, I, I, I don't think that that's what it takes to say something like that. Right. Yes. I, I got you. I, I think that just the leap of like, well, you know, so, I mean like, and it's at, at every level, at the level of a mass shooting or at the level of abuse of the folks around you or, you know, that the idea of, oh, well, something violent happened? Well, clearly, any given white guy is already so on the verge of mm. extreme violence mm. that it doesn't take a lot for for that person to get there. I think that what is more frightening is that that police officer found those actions to be somehow relatable. Wow. Yeah. That, wow. Like that it it was so quickly that that, again, getting back to empathy, that that is what was empathized with. That person was just And that it was at hand. I know that feeling. Yeah. When you want to just go shoot people because that's actually my job. What? Uh. Yeah. I mean, the baked in part of it too. I think a bunch of people are like, why are we talking about language so much? Words, what do words right. do? What, and it's like, you, that's where you see the stuff that you can't see elsewhere. The baked in yeah. stuff, the stuff that's just in the air. Go look at the words. Go look at the food. That's Go where look we at, like, <laughs> the, yeah. the things that just get tossed around, you know? Um, I think for a lot of people, it's very hard to, to, uh, to know why, like, why are we making such a big deal about what words someone said. Um, And it's like, I think it's another protection of whiteness is just the amazingly short memory. It's like the world was not always like this, but we have, we have remade it 
to be as such through a, a, a horrible, um, not even a telling really of history, a horrible yeah. distortion of only certain histories. And therefore you think that maybe the way things are were basically the way things were. And it's like, no. Absolutely not. As well as, I mean, in talking about language, part of, part of white supremacy is in language, is in the idea of that we all have equal access to language, mm. that language means English, mm. <laughs> um, that, you know, that English treats all people the same, that there's somehow like, you know, that that language is simple and plain and is there and you can take it at face value and don't read too much into it because, you know, it's just words and they have meanings and whatever. Like, that that too is part of, that is literally how white supremacy works. I'm thinking about a um, lecture that I attended recently that was like about how in the classroom that that classrooms are places where white supremacy like replicates itself. Yes. Where white supremacy is learned and is forced onto young people um, by way of saying like, here's how you can talk and here's how you're not allowed to talk. Like here's, here is who came into class already speaking the way that we want them to speak. And if you don't speak that way, then you're not, you're, you're not doing it right. Then you're already behind. And not because it is less effective or because it communicates less. Honestly, thinking about, um, in thinking about something that, things that we have to check in ourselves, I, over the past couple of years, have really had, <laughs> I am famously a person who cannot, I could not learn a leather language to save my life. <laughs> I don't know what it is. You've got I some Latin in you. <laughs> uh, mm. No. Oh, okay. <laughs> I don't think it's the vocabulary. I think I can memorize. I remember a lot of Latin words from the six years of Latin that I took. I think it might be the conjugation that really gets gets me going. Anyway, I'm a person who, like, does not do a good job of learning other languages. Um, Thank God I know English because mm. if I had to learn it, I don't think that I could. <laughs> or I simply would have, like, I would struggle and, and have to figure it out as many, many people do, but that I often have to check in myself that like English is not the, <laughs> it, it sounds ridiculous to say, it is something that I have to unlearn. That like, there are people who speak many, many, many different languages and who just because I do not speak those languages does not mean that they are any less smart or able to think about big ideas or think about other people's experience or what, you know, just because I, there's a language barrier for me does not mean that, you know, they are any less capable of thought than, than I am. And I find that that's something that I have to, to check in myself over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, and that I, I really am working to, to break down anytime that I come across it. But part of like, that is also how white supremacy functions in language. That I think, oh, well, if, like, I understand English, and if you can't explain it to me in English, then mm, you must not be very good at explaining things. Or you you must not be thinking about it very comprehensively mm -hmm. because you cannot communicate it to me in the one language that I speak. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. And I mean, a question for both of us, really, like, 
okay, what do we do with that? Like yeah. when we see, when I see myself playing into the hand that yeah. we've talked about, you know, these lines of division are artificial, one, and don't yeah. benefit you or me or really yeah. anybody. <laughs> um, when we have those moments of like, oh, wait, I'm, I'm participating in language supremacy or X, Y, and Z. I, I just stood by while that person told this joke. Um, yeah. What do we do? I'm not asking you like you have the answers, but I, I feel like that is where I, I feel like I've got to sit in this particular social moment. Yeah. I, I think that it is in the intervention. I, I think that that's a lot of, I think that there's a lot that lies in intervention into intervention work. Um, and that sometimes that intervention is in something that you see from a friend, from a family member, from a stranger, um, which are all difficult to navigate in their own ways, but are like, like that is the work, <laughs> like mm-hmm. that is the thing that we have to figure out. Um, and sometimes it's in my, it's in yourself. Sometimes it's in myself that I have to be like, why do I think that? <laughs> Why am I making that assumption? Um, and that in teasing apart those assumptions or finding, oh, I'm making this assumption, let me go read up on on something or let me go try to seek out some someone who has talked about this before. Mm. Um, that that is where... That is where part of that work comes in. And that... I find that when I check it in myself, when I like have the conversation in my own brain of like, wait, why do I think that? That it then is easier to have the conversation with someone else. Gotcha. Um, that if I, in this particular assumption that, that I am talking about, like in thinking about, oh, well, if someone does not know English, that has no indication of, their intelligence, what they're able to understand or, or what we should assume about them. Um, that when I question my own head, okay, why did, why am I thinking about that? Why am I thinking this way about this person? Can I imagine ways in which that wouldn't be true? Like why, why this assumption would not, <laughs> would not hold up. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the like, the 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 contrary proof like when you prove uh-huh. that something is false because you come up with a way in which it doesn't work um that then when i am talking when i like hear someone else say it then it's like i already have the thing i've already thought of like oh well here's why that is not an assumption that makes sense to make yeah um like it, it's like practicing having the conversation with yourself first i love that and it's like working on yourself actually is also equipping you to be in community with people in a much better way. Yeah. Like you just yeah. said. Um, wow. And I also hear in that a lot of, a lot of humility is required to say, okay, pause Kenyon. Let's pretend for a second that I, I don't know everything. Yeah. So I can ask some questions to myself and not already have to have had the answers already. Sure. Um, Yeah. And that is, I mean, 
there's a, there's a softness, a tenderness, uh, a generosity that's required to actually have a real conversation with myself in that way that I feel like I'm, I don't, um, I, I have been, uh, ha- I've been having to relearn because out in the world, sure. especially, this is speaking to other marginalized people, um, like out in the world, it's, it, it does not pay to be, to, you know, not look like you have all your stuff together and be black and be queer. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so it, there's got to be a space to, to shed some of the armor that I know that I carry into the world sometimes and be like, yeah. okay, here, wherever here is with my family, with myself, with my friends, I don't have to know everything. Here, I can make mistakes yeah. and I won't, like my life won't be in jeopardy or, you know what I'm saying? Um, like, yeah. but that's, that's another way in which the, the systems have, have really entrenched these artificial divides. It's like, to be able to even do the self-work requires a level of safety sometimes not even afforded. Yeah. It, that's honestly making me think about, sometimes I, I think we talked about this with Haja, that sometimes I'm like, <laughs> I think of myself as a very confident person in a lot of ways. There are a lot of other, there are many other ways and situations, whatever, that I don't feel very confident and a lot of them are like professional. A lot of them are like promoting in promoting myself. A lot of them are like, <laughs> like how to say to someone like, I am a composer. I write music and I actually want you to hear it. And I actually think it's really good. Um, that those are things that I like in the moment find it very difficult to say. Um, and sometimes I'm like, God, I wish that I could just like be more sure of myself. And in hearing you say, you in hearing what you just said, that like, I don't know, it is, it is not a, something that um, Ibram X. Kendi, How to Be Anti-Racist, mm. talks about a lot is that there, <laughs> that traits, that qualities are not inherently valued, that we have assigned value to them. Mm. Um and a lot of that, honestly, is is part of supremacy and is part of racism and is part of, you know, these big hegemonic things. Um, but that, like, humility or being unsure or being uncertain or not having an answer are not things that are to be ashamed of. Like, there's nothing inherently negative about those things. Yeah. Um, and it is, you're reminding me to not just assume that, like, having all the answers and being really confident and sure of yourself is always the right thing, is always a positive thing. That there's a lot to be gained from questioning and from being unsure. And in what might you take with you into the future? Mm. I'm, uh, I want to continue the the going back through my own history kind of that I've been doing over the past week with yeah. um in attention to some of what you talked about the language that that I questioning the language that comes up in my mind while I'm doing that um yeah and then also cra- like putting some energy into crafting a a space 
a group of people, a ritual, a whatever, where I go to be, to not have the answers. Um, to, to set up a, a place for me to go, to go do that. Because um, like we talked, touched on at the end, I think that is really critical in doing some of this unlearning. Like yeah. it's, it's got to be safe to unlearn. Yeah. Where are you as we head out of this conversation and into the world? I'm thinking about um, a, a friend of mine wrote this post on social media once that like she's black, she's black and queer. And she wrote that n- no one is born... That no mar- no no one with mar- with a marginalized identity is born being anti-racist. I don't know if that's exactly the language that she used, mm. but that like at some point, like, and one day we will have a whole conversation about the word, a whole episode about the word woke. But that like no one is born woke. That even black people, even AAPI folks, even women, even queer people are not born knowing how to dismantle systems of oppression. It is something that we have had to learn and not just learn through personal experience. It is something that like, you know, we had to do the reading too. (laughs) Like we had to, the the same way that last summer, everyone's like, okay, read up and figure out and get your toolbox together, whatever. Like we all had to do that too. Um, We all were faced with the you know, the realities of systemic oppression in all of its many dimensions and had to do the work to figure out where we fit in it and and how to pick it apart. And are still doing that work like that. And so I'm carrying with me, like, <laughs> it's very easy in like, you know, old institutions where, or in spaces where you're the only insert identity here uh, to feel the expectation of like, well, you should be the expert because, you know, oh, Jerome, you should be the expert because you're black and you're young and you're queer. Um, and here I am not the expert. And uh, sometimes I am not even, sometimes I'm the perpetrator. <laughs> um, and so uh, carrying that sense of humility that like, I had to do this at some point. Any, anything that I know now, I had to learn. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and had to go out of my way to purposefully learn. Um, or, or people had to go out of their way to purposefully teach me and impart onto me. Um, and, and that that's something that I still have to continue to do. That, yeah, that like in the same way that like, oh, no one is born racist, like we are taught it by our society. But that also is true for me. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I was not born anti-racist. <laughs> I was not born with the tools to to combat every single, you know, systemic oppression and all of its tendrils Ooh. that I might come across. Yeah. Thanks for having this conversation with me. Yeah, thank you. And thanks to the listeners. Keep us coming back every week. Mm, keep me coming back for more and guess what we'll be back again next week (laughs) bye we love that you love we love that this podcast is brought to you by jerome that's me and Kenyon. that's him 
with music by Sophia Campomore and art by Griffin Keller. Drop us a line at welovethatpodcast at gmail.com. Bye. Hello, hello. I'm Kenyon. Welcome. Where? How do we start this thing? <laughs> <laughs> okay. I said we'll try it again, and uh, it didn't work. And here we will. So here we go.